Welcome to Her Stories, a series of podcasts showcasing the diverse expertise, wisdom, and courage of the members of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, presented by peace activist Magda Zenon. In each episode, recorded during the coronavirus social isolation period, a different mediator shares her story. Hello, this is Magda. Today on Her Stories, we speak with Yaking Etuk. Yatking is an Emirati professor at the Middle East Technical University in Ankara and has held international positions and human rights mandate throughout her professional career. Welcome, Yakin. Thank you very much. Yakin, you have got a very long CV. You have a lot of experience. Why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Okay, well, the length of the CV, of course, has a lot to do with years. <laughs> well, I'm an academic or uh, as uh, uh, as a priority, uh, but in my uh, during my career, I've I've been very privileged to have held uh, positions out of the academia, which has the two have really reinforced and fed into one another. As uh, during my more purely academic uh, years, I must say I'm not a trained mediator, or uh, would call myself a mediator or a negotiator as such. But the kind of work that I have done, I have uh, informally used mediation techniques. For example, uh, in, in 1997, for the first time in Turkey, myself and a number of my students at the university, we did what we called problem-solving uh, seminars or sessions mm. with rural women who, who were really the most invisible and the most silent segments. And through problem-solving techniques, which is a form of dialogue and uh, mediation. We aimed to gear these women to speaking up for themselves, expressing themselves, and then addressing authorities who would then respond to their claims and needs. It was uh, a groundbreaking uh, experience. Several TV channels aired us, Mm -hmm. and from around the world, even mostly uh, in Europe, Turks, uh, the diaspora, called, sent us messages saying that they would be very much interested in becoming part of this and providing support. But can unfortunately, I, can... I, uh, I left the country for international UN position the same year, and I was not able to continue this. And since then, of course, many similar things are being done. So in that sense, problem-solving mediation work, uh, I think this is a good example of how one can use that without uh, necessarily speaking on behalf, but providing the ground for voicing for these invisible segments of the society to voice themselves and to come together to find solutions for their own problems. In that sense, it was a, a very powerful experience. And then, of course, I went into international human rights work. But can I where... interrupt you? Can I interrupt you before you go to the international work? But that's the whole point about why we need to promote the work of women mediators, because it's not one-dimensional, okay? It's not just the mediator at the negotiating table. It's not just the person that you can see. A lot of the time, it's behind closed doors. A lot of the time, it's women that you wouldn't consider, or people you wouldn't consider possibly have a voice. It's offering them the opportunity to have a voice so that the ultimate solution represents them. 
So I think this is a very good um The whole idea is to make many people understand that mediation is not one level. It's a lot of different levels. Absolutely. Yes. So in that sense, I think what I consider mediation to be is that it's a strategy of dialogue. Mm. It's a strategy of engagement, which is uh, very, very important. And it's a strategy of empowerment. Uh, And you can use many different techniques through which to achieve these very different levels of uh, mediation. Another, uh, perhaps a less uh, uh, unconventional uh, concept that I have introduced when I was UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women was the concept of cultural negotiation. Which means? Now, this cultural negotiation, it didn't really become flagged out very much, but it did encourage many uh, women in different countries to do cultural negotiation. Let me give an example. Uh, When it comes to women's rights issues, what I noticed as a rapporteur, every country I went to visit, the governments would tell me the same thing. Oh, it's our culture. Uh, So culture is always used as the main cause of hindering women's Mm. rights issues. But I was very suspicious. Countries have different cultures. So how can it be that every culture uh, is used as an excuse? So I, uh, in my report to the Human Rights Council, I said, if there are cultural elements preventing us from proceeding uh, in women's rights, then we must negotiate with culture, bring out the positive elements and do away with the negative ones. So it's, it's in my report, uh, in one of my reports to the Human Rights Council. What, did, what this did is it encouraged and inspired many women's rights organizations around the world uh, who were dealing with these kinds of issues, such as stoning uh, and other forms of uh, torturing women in the name of culture. Mm. And killings. a very powerful movement started, particularly among Asian countries. This is not our culture. They termed it, this is not our culture. So this is another example of how we can use various techniques of engagement and dialogue to really flesh out the contradictions in these dominant ideologies that hinder human rights. So these were these are two examples that I can give. And then uh, more at a more formal level in my human rights work, um, as you know, I've held... Uh, I was on the commissions of inquiry on two uh, conflict areas. Mm. Uh, one was on Kyrgyzstan, which was created, which is which was really an independent uh, entity, and then the other one was uh, created by the UN Human Rights Council mm-hmm. on Syria in 2011, when the conflict first broke out. I spent six months as one of the commi- three commissioners on the Syria. Commission of Inquiry. Uh, It was an incredible uh, experience. We were not granted entry into Syria. So our main source of information was coming from uh, people who fled from Syria into the uh, neighboring countries such as Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon. Uh, Of course, now the numbers have soared up to those days. Uh, If I recall correctly, when we started our work, there were 11,000 refugees in Turkey, Turkish camps. Now there are like 
three, four million yes. people, not only in camps, but throughout the country. Can and I similarly in the other countries. Can I ask you when, by, how do you get information from people that have fled the country by going to the refugee camps? Because they, yes, must, yes. Be, they must be on the move all the time. Well, what uh, the Human Rights uh, Office of the uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights provided a team of investigators for us uh-huh. from their, among their staff. So there was uh, an experienced group of people, young people, who were based in the refugee camps at lengthy times. And we as commissioners, we visited on frequent occasions. So in addition to the refugee camps, of course, we had online access to people in Syria, as well as throughout the world where Syrian uh, opposition or uh, diaspora uh, was living in. But uh, sorry, sorry. I actually, I actually connected at one stage at the beginning of the Syrian conflict with a wonderful young woman that had left for the States and was actually a social media focal point. So she was collecting information and making sure it was getting published to ensure to get beyond the silencing of the media coverage that Assad was trying to do at the time. So the the the, the network is incredible when you when you have to get the way the word out. Absolutely. Well actually when the commission first started working, it was all very uh hands-on kind of thing and there was very little organized such uh, uh, networks, but it grew. Mm. Today, of course, uh, there are so many groups, and it's sad that we're still talking about the Syria conflict eight years, nine years since it first blew up because it has not uh, been resolved. And that brings me to the issue of our work as commissioners. We not only evaluated information that was coming from the ground, whether from inside Syria or from the refugee camps, but we were also doing a lot of mediation type of work with member states. Because as you know, the Syria crisis had a polarized sort of a fan Mm. club, if I may say, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, The Friends of Syria, which included Uh, the majority of Western countries, Turkey, uh, some of the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, it was an odd combination of countries. And each one had a different interest, I must say. And I have written on these in various occasions. Uh, And I think that's one of the difficulties in resolving the Syria conflict because of such incredible amount of conflicting and supporting interests. Mm. Uh, So you have on the one hand, the Friends of Syria group, Uh, who were adamant, this is the first six months now I'm talking about, this this has changed considerably (laughs) since then. They were adamant about getting Assad out. That was the priority priority of their objective. So uh, Assad was seen as the villain, and he had to go out. On the other side, you had the coalition of Russian Federation, China, Iran, who were who had a very different vision. And they were in favor of supporting reforms within Syria. the Assad regime to overcome some of the problems that led to the conflicts. So we were constantly shuttling back and forth between these two different uh, blocks, sometimes having some success, but more often not. 
And at the end of six months, I realized that the international will to have a resolution for the Syria conflict was really absent. Because mm. I it was my opinion that, and the opinion of our commission at large, we were a three-member commission, um, we felt, and in our reports that we presented, we felt that there was a great deal of room at that time for a peaceful resolution. We called for a peace conference, which was never, never happened. To. So there was there was possibility of getting uh, a peaceful resolution where most of the interests would be answered. But there, this came to a deadlock. And we never made it to Syria, as I said. So we would be communicating with the Syrian ambassador in Geneva or uh, in other countries where we would be visiting. So it was a very complicated and trying affair. And at the end of the six months, um, I felt my usefulness in the commission my, was no longer uh, present. So I uh, excused myself. Now, in such situations, negotiators uh, or um, people like us, independent experts, trying to sort of find solutions, some levels of dialogue mm. for a resolution become extremely difficult. Uh, and of course, uh, the past eight, nine years testifies uh, that uh, right. there's a big deadlock mm. uh, with the Syria crisis. Uh, I don't know how the commission is functioning at the moment. I have not followed them closely, but it's continuing uh, its work. Can, so I just, can, I, can, my... can I just interrupt you? But isn't it always easier to get a solution at the beginning of a conflict? The longer the conflict draws out, the more sure. Sure. the the more tired people are, the more anger there is, the more um, persistence there is that I'm right and he's wrong. The more egos come into play. Absolutely. So when I left March 2012, the conflict had already turned into a civil war, or it was fast moving into a civil war. Because as you know, the first few months of the conflict was not a civil no, war as wasn't. such. And it was very alarming that a civil war actually broke out and both sides were being fed by their supporters. And as time went along, the gap in authority in the region, of course, invited many extreme groups, uh, the Daesh and other uh, extremist groups mm. who became a sort of a major problem for everybody in the region and a destabilizing factor in my own country, we're still dealing with uh, penetration into our borders yes. by these extremists. So things have really gone out of hand. And as you say, people investing in culture became institutionalized. Mm. Uh, not culture, I'm sorry. In people conflict. investing in conflict became institutionalized. It became a way of life. Look at the Palestine crisis yes. for over, it's going to be a hundred years soon, and it's still going to be unresolved. Children grow with conflict and with violence and with uh, weapons around them. But even, in, this, but even in Cyprus, Yakin, we've got a 50-year conflict of around 50 years. We've actually grown up with the vision that children that didn't live in a united island, the vision is what they know. 
uh, barbed wire is what they know. They are fed the the public discourse that is usually nationalistic and divisive, but not reconciling. So the longer you hear it, after a while, this is what's right. Absolutely. Cyprus is uh, always sort of forgotten yes. when we discuss these things for some reason. No, it's forgotten, uh, but, it's forgotten because we don't have war. Yes. yes. <laughs> the people yeah, are not I think dying. That's an important thing, Magda, because where there is no open violence and warfare, people think everything is fine. I found that I, that's very critical for women's rights issues too. If, if there is no open uh, conflict, and I'll get to that in a little while, they, it is assumed that uh, everything's okay. happening yes. in countries, and that's not the case. But you reminded me of Cyprus. Let me just talk about an anecdote. In, on our way to the Beijing conference, two, uh, when was it, 1995, there were two trains, as you will recall, one the peace train, which I was not on, but there was a training train which was supported by organized by the UN, I believe. And I was very happy uh, that one of the few times my government put its money where uh, it's, it's useful. <laughs> Turkey, uh, 1990s, of course, was a very special period. Uh, there was a lot of commitment on the part of governments for human rights issues. Yes, so the were. Turkish government had also supported this train. Anyway, I was invited as a tr- one of the trainers. And we had women from Central Asian countries, from ba- the Balkans, and from Cyprus, both sides. And uh, it took us uh, over a week. To, we boarded on um, on the train in uh, Warsaw uh, uh, until uh, we reached uh, Beijing. It was an incredible experience. I won't get into uh, those parts. But what happened was, in the course of our uh, training sessions and so forth, the Cyprus issue, now this is 1995, mm. so the memory was still quite strong. Fresh. And the division was unpenetrable. Mm. So uh, the Cyprus issue uh, started coming out as an important issue. And we had some mediation experts on the train, people who are known uh, mediators who have written on these issues. But I, uh, I was invited by both sides, the Greek and the Turkish woman, to become part of a small group to mediate the problem between the two sides. So we held sort of private sessions okay. on the train between the Turkish and the Greek woman. Now, it was very dangerous for women, particularly the Turkish woman, to engage in such a movement back uh, in yes, Cyprus, it was. those days. It's very dangerous. So on the train, when during our sessions, we decided that at the end of the Beijing conference, sort of a conference or some kind of an event can be held at the border to attract international attention. But unfortunately, the the time was not right for this. So it was not possible. But we, we did make an incredible headway among the women themselves, who at the beginning of the train uh, voyage were distant to one another, mm. suspicious of one another. But at the end, we were all sort of you know, the typ- <laughs> typical thing, Absolutely. crying and hugging one another. And I was very privileged that they saw me, although I was not a, a trained negotiator as such, that I could contribute to this process and I was invited to be part of this group. So I had forgotten that. Thank, thank you for reminding me. So these are important moments. Uh, some, of, some of this experience 
becomes written, but mm. a lot of women's experiences are undocumented. They are all, uh, they're just stories. So this kind of thing, what you're doing, is a mode of documentation. And I think women's history uh, needs to be documented. And oral history has become a technique over the years to uh, really get some of this information and document it so that it can be used. So my Cyprus um, successful mediation <laughs> uh, ceremony there uh, experience has become now part of women's history, I'm very happy to say. In my human rights work, uh, six years I was the UN Rapporteur on Violence Against Women. This was a remarkable uh, six years of my life. Rapporteurs, again, like the commissioners, UN commissioners, not only document and analyze information, but we actually do a mediation. Oh, okay. Because we deal with disputes, we deal with conflict situations, we deal with not only community level, family level, but state level uh, problems that prevent uh, advancing the uh, struggle to end violence. So in the course of uh, my rapporteur work, I gave you the example of my cultural negotiation yes. concept. This I find one of my sort of modest but very important Successes. contributions to the literature and to the field. I have uh, wrote, written a whole report on uh, cult uh, culture and violence against women, trying to argue that what people call culture is actually patriarchal culture. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's what's so common around the world. So that's why when governments are saying, this is our culture, they're really talking about this is male-dominant mentality. And this is something by unpacking, by negotiating, we can come to terms with. And there have been very significant women's movements in that area trying to deal with cultures uh, defined as such. But my uh, the countries that I visit, I visit a total of 17 countries as rapporteur, and among them uh, there were conflict and post-conflict countries. El Salvador, Guatemala were the two first countries that I visited. Both of them with horrific numbers in gender-based violence. Absolutely, and they have both have an incredible history of conflict mm -hmm. and uh, very important uh, peace processes before uh, Security Council Resolution 1325 ever came out. And uh, I have written an article which compares the two countries along with Afghanistan and, and uh, DRC as two more recent examples. But publication uh, procedures of the journal I sent to is still ongoing. And of course, with the corona coming in the middle of all of this, <laughs> so God knows when it's going to be published. But anyway, these are two very important countries. Although their peace process took place in 1990s, the conflict is still part of their life. And it is still a major issue that's being negotiated and uh, they're trying to come to terms with. And women, of course, are always in the middle of this. And they, then, both, they both have very high femicides. South America. Absolutely. Of course, Mexico. Yes. Uh, Guatemala. Honduras. El Salvador. All Central Asian, yes. Central America. uh, American countries uh, have become known for their very high levels of femicides. Mm. And I'm getting information now during the 
corona period, and Latin America is doing very poorly in fighting the coronavirus, that levels of violence against women have really soared. Mm. In Colombia, which underwent a very hard but uh, somewhat successful peace process, now all those positive advances are really being challenged on another ground. Yes. Anyway, uh, so uh, struggle goes on. There's no ending, I'm afraid. We cannot wrap things up and say, okay, we finished. Now we can move on to something else. Yeah, Ken, how easy is it for you to actually win? Because I'm assuming part of your job is to bring to the forefront of how important it is to deal with gender-based violence in terms of peace building. I mean, it's it's part of the... How receptive are the policymakers or the stakeholders? How how well do they understand the fact that gender-based violence is a pandemic? Uh, I'm sure. I, I don't think they do. But look at the way uh, the policies that countries have followed during the corona pandemic. The violence against women pandemic was totally forgotten mm. or even uh, it was really unleashed by with the stay-at-home yep. policies. So s- home is where the problem is. For a lot of women, and, that's where the problem is. Absolutely. And in Turkey uh, and in many other countries too, there were freeing of some prisoners during this period. And many of those prisoners who were let out are uh, have cases of uh, histories of uh, violence, child abuse, and so forth. And these people went back to the to their homes, to their happy homes, <laughs> which, which I'm sure did not become very happy afterwards. Mm. So the pandemic, if I have uh, recently expressed to another interview in Turkey that if governments paid half the attention they're paying to the corona pandemic, to violence against women pandemic, we would have had uh, much more success in fighting this mm. uh, situation. And the, the thing is, Corona is invisible, and it's very untractable. Mm. But violence against women is out in the open. And it's very visible. And And it's very very visible. visible, And there are early signs Mm. that it's coming, but nothing is being done until it's too late. This mentality has not changed, and unfortunately, with this right-wing populism spreading across the globe. It's going to get worse. And it's going to become worse probably with the authoritarian uh, modules adopted during the virus. The attacks on women are getting worsening. They're not uh, becoming contained. Yes. So it's, it's a very serious problem. I think when the women's movement uh, for rights started, in many countries, the patriarchs, I use that to refer to misogynist male <laughs> attitudes, they didn't take it very seriously. Sometimes they even, you no, know, they took laugh. it as a joke. Yes. They made jokes. Oh, look at the woman kind of thing. This happened everywhere. But now, the past 10 years, 20 years, everyone has seen where the women's movement is going. And there's a big alarm. Yes. Alarm for those who want to maintain their privileged patriarchal positions. Look at the Istanbul Convention. In the Council of Europe area, which 
supposedly should be more liberal compared to the rest of the world in terms of human rights and women's rights values. There is war against the Istanbul Convention. Yes. Only 13 countries, member states of the council, still have not ratified the convention for various reasons. And among those who have, there are right-wingers who are pushing their governments or sometimes governments themselves who want to opt out of the Istanbul Convention because they consider it as the most harmful thing for the Holy Family. (laughs) Oh, there you go. You know, there is sort of a revitalization of the hard masculine. Yes, this uh, macho, this macho aggression. It's terrible. Absolutely. So it has not, so patriarchy has been destabilized, I think. It has been ruptured. There has been a great damage caused to it with not only with the women's movement, but the economic penetrations that changed family structures and so forth. But it's still living and fighting back. Yes, because it's in panic. Absolutely. So this is where we are with regard to violence against women. I think we're facing a far more difficult uh, struggle because before we, the enemy had not awakened, I use enemy, not in a derogatory word, but... Uh, the opposition, who, the opposition. opposition. Yes, they had not awakened to the situation. Mm. Today, there's an organized opposition opposing women's rights, gay rights. These are also matched with anti-refugee rights. And, and this is plaguing the European Union, which is being hit on its own grounds mm-hmm. with the dilemma of upholding human rights, democracy values, and coming to terms with the unwanted refugees who are at their borders or inside their borders. So this is a dilemma of our age, I think. And the European Union has not come out of this in a very successful way yet. No, they haven't. They're battling. They actually woke up too late, I think. Yes. They woke up too late. And they were quite quite cavalier. Were we the EU? They were very cavalier. And they threw responsibility on the border countries, on Greece, on Italy. They... the, on the and the, they, these are two poor countries. They threw a responsibility of countries without a backup. Just deal yes. with it. Yes. Well, the Syrian refugee issue really disclosed the hypocrisy. Well, everybody's hypocrisy across the board. Mm. All governments really failed to hold a very progressive and correct stand on this. Just before the corona hit, as you know the refugees piling on the Greek, Turkish-Greek border, was a tragedy. Total tragedy. A human tragedy. They're playing with people's lives. Absolutely. So it's very discouraging to see these kinds of things, but I think we need to recognize them, and we need to recognize them not in a nationalistic point of view, because then it's very easy to put the blame elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but to very hold on to very serious human rights values to try to see if there are alternative ways we can deal with. And this is what mediation is all about. Mediation also comes in, I think. 
I think I think we need to get rid of the egos because I think a lot of the time, not a lot of the, but in most cases, the conflict is a, if I compromise, I lose. Yes. They don't look at the, the fact that the pie can be shed amongst all of us. James Baldwin, this black American uh, scholar, way back 50 years ago when he was writing, he said something like, it's not very fresh in my mind, so I may make a pure, uh, poor replica of it. But he was talking about race relations, and he was also gay, I believe, so he, was, he had double discrimination those days. He said, if man and he was using the word man, he, they had not cr- discovered woman yet those days. <laughs> if man gives up on his dreams and his privileges that he holds today, he may reach greater freedoms. And it's such a powerful oh, yes, it is. way of looking at the world because you may be powerful today, you may hold privilege, but as long as that privilege is sitting on oppression, of others, yes, it, it's a very unstable privilege. So giving this up may 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 be painful at at the transit, but you it gives us a possibility to establish a far more uh, emancipating uh, world. Oh yes, it Unfortunately, does. Unfortunately, this mentality has not become internalized by those who are ruling us, nor by the the common people. I I was just watching the news the other day. As you know, America is being burned up with anti-racial violence. One white man was yelling at the police saying, how can you kill our own people? If you want to kill, go to Iraq. What the hell? (laughs) They were shocked. Now, this was a man who was sitting with his black fellow Americans. So he considered himself non-racist. But look how deeply ingrained racism is. And how little we recognize that we are all racist in some form. Absolutely. So it's okay to go and kill the Iraqis because they're bad guys. Mm. You see? We all have someone who's a bad guy. I, I battle with it constantly because I as I don't know if you know, but I was born I was brought up in apartheid South Africa, which means the political oh, yeah, the political public discourse was blacks are lesser than whites. And even though I consider myself to be an anti racist, things just split uh, things just jump out of my mouth because it was in the conversation. Yes. It was yes. in the public conversation. So a lot of the time I'll say something and I'll say, oh, beep, I shouldn't have said that because that is so it's very difficult. This thing about we don't actually realize how racist we all are or how, how much the public conversation has influenced us. That's right. And I think the refugee issue of our time has really brought that inner, deeply ingrained Racism to doubt. Yes, it has. Outside. So it's a test for all of us, I think. But anyway, uh, this is all very interesting and not surrendering to the status quo, but trying to unwrap, untangle what the status quo entails, uh, including our own minds Excellent. and hearts. Start there. It's a fascinating thing. You live and you learn. And I think because we're all brought up within biased uh, structures. 
uh, my generation of women had to work hard on recognizing our own patriarchal biases. It took a long time for us to recognize that we were our own worst enemy. patriarchal sort of police, mm. in a way. So racism is the same way. And to keep our hearts and minds open is the only way, I think. And to, to not to be afraid of touching the fire when it comes to these hot issues. Yes. That's the only way I think we can uh, do it. So I find this whole issue of mediation and negotiation a fascinating field. However, I must also, and, and, and just to wrap it up, in my rapporteur days, of course, this was very important. On the one hand, I was trying to document what things were going wrong in specific countries, but also to talk to women to help them to break their own silence. Yes. I had several cases. I remember one Afghan young woman. She was not even 18 at the time. She and her younger sister were at a, a camp who had not been resettled in Afghanistan yet. They had returned from, I believe, Iran when the conflict was taking place. Their Their family had taken refuge in Iran. So... I went to Afghanistan in 2005 or six uh, after the Taliban. So uh, some of the refugees were coming back. And these two sisters, young sisters, were in a refugee camp. And this young woman was identified by the international workers there as a resourceful woman who could help because she had good linguistic, uh, not in English, but uh, in her own language, she was very literate and mm. so forth. So anyway, I was discussing with her her experience, both in Iran and when they returned. It was a very pain. It started out, she was telling me of problems that were occurring outside of her. Okay. I recognized that there was a soft part which was pointing to her own experience, which she was trying to avoid. And at the end of our one or two hours of very intimate sort of navigation, and this is what mediation is, isn't it? It's mm. a strategy of navigating the problem ground, problematic ground. She burst into tears telling me that she was sexually abused all those years by her, her own father as refugees in the isolation of her sort of family unit. These things never come out no, they don't. Unless, unless you can provide a ground of self-expression. and A safe uh, ground, meditation. a safe ground of self-expression. That's right, that's right. Mm. But here again, I have one reservation with regard to some areas where mediation is being introduced, and that is in a formal sense, not in an informal sort of navigation that I'm talking about, which is extremely powerful yes. and empowering. But for years now, they've been in many countries, mediation for family disputes has become a very popular area and organized mediation. Yes. So the idea is to prevent cases from going to courts and resolving them out of court. So reduce the burden on the courts. And uh, there is an assumption that uh, such mediation can give voice to women 
and that it can help to come with better uh, resolutions, which will not be disruptive to community and family. Mm. Now, I have a little bit of a problem there because this kind of use of uh, mediation can potentially be very harmful for the woman. One, Why? By, uh, well, but because it will coerce, coerce a settlement. Because gender relations is uh, such a sensitive area in many countries that women are extremely disempowered, that community-level solutions have always, because this happens in an informal basis, doesn't it? Yes, the it community does. elders come together, they try to um, settle a dispute. The dispute always ends up in women going back to accepting her position. And this is very uh, dangerous, I think. So those who are engaged in this kind of negotiation work have to recognize this and be able to introduce modalities into their work which can uh, embrace these risks um, easily. Another area is the fact that negotiation, now I'm talking about formal negotiations, take place as a confidential Uh uh, process in privacy. So that privacy, the women's movement have been sort of fighting against the privacy of the home for years <laughs> because it's that privacy that covered up. That was a protection the, for the abuser. Right. So there's no there's no possibility of really knowing how much give and take has taken place in the privacy of such negotiations. Mm. There's no public scrutiny. So uh, this, this also prevents the development of uh, case law which is so important for us. So another other risk but, of such negotiations is that it leaves patriarchy unchallenged. It sort of deals with the privatized or individualized problem. Okay, yes, yes. The individual woman's problem and not deal with the structural inequalities. So these are areas where I feel we need to be extremely careful with all the wonderful uh, experiences uh, and stories I can tell on how negotiation and uh, mediation. mediation can really open up incredible space for human rights, we need to be careful when it is introduced into these sensitive areas of family mediation, child abuse areas, where I count the some of the risks that I counted are serious risks. And we're anticipating that the Turkish government will introduce family mediation, which will be handled by lawyers who may not have gender sensitivity yes so i fear i fear that uh, we may face uh, real difficulties there so we need to be vigilant and lay the ground uh, strong we have some uh, colleagues in the turkish antenna who uh, who deal with these issues and i and i'm hoping that we can come up with some criteria which uh, which can help this field without it becoming a very detrimental area, a new area we have to fight against. Exactly. And, and so, that, I mean, at, 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 I think you were very good in pointing out that we mediation doesn't solve everything and it's not a copy-paste, okay? It's right. got to be quite different for each. But to end this interview, of course, we could, I could listen to you for hours. Lots of you have such an interesting experience. The network, the Mediterranean Women's Network, 
Women Mediates Network, what do you think it can offer? What do you think its benefit is? And Well, you know, it's a very heterogeneous group, as you know. Mm. Meetings, the few meetings that I have engaged in, there are uh, women who have more underground experience and have a more uh, different vision of what mediation uh, of conflicts can bring. And then there are women who are very close to uh, political power. Mm. Uh, So there's... Uh, sort of vision is uh, naturally constrained by official ideology. So this this may cause a very wide range of perspectives within the uh, Mediterranean case. Uh, but then there are cases where, uh, such as the Turkish-Greek uh, dispute uh. with respect to Cyprus, Armenian issue, uh, the Middle East, uh, Arab Israeli, these are hot spots. And so the Mediterranean network can be a possibility for us as women mediators to address these and come up with alternatives. I know how difficult this is because women peacemakers for years have been Trying. dealing with these hot issues and it has been difficult. The The distance covered has been very slow. But again, nobody said it's going to be easy. So I think the Mediterranean uh, mediation, net, women's mediation network has its specific problems and constraints, but it also offers opportunity for dealing with really difficult issues. And if we can come to terms with these, we may be able to contribute to a vision of peace, uh, which, uh, which is more sustainable. I think we need to take the, take the challenge. And then, uh, of course, a more easier p- function of the network is to train female negotiators and make them available for uh, peace negotiations globally. Because, you know, when, it ca- when we criticize authorities that women have not been included, they say, oh, there are no qualified mediators. Well, I think, uh, I think- that's not the... That's not an excuse. There are qualified, and we need to make that database and available. So we have to recognize our difficulties and not be afraid to address them. Okay, I think that's a good note to end on. That we've got to we've got so. to recognize that we've got challenges ahead, but we're up for it. Absolutely, <laughs> we're up for it. We're up for it. It's lovely to speak with you, Yakin. Thank you, Margaret. It was a pleasure talking with you as well. Thank you very much for coming on Her Stories and look forward to maybe meeting again soon when this coronavirus is over. Maybe we can meet in Nicosia one day. Absolutely. That's what maybe we need to do. Bring the Turk. Let's do that. Let's take that on. Yes, let's take that on. Once the coronavirus. In 1995, what we couldn't succeed in 1995 on that train, the little peace hope that we built there let's work on that and try to make it because i think today it's easier there is a riper ground for it and yes there's a riper ground and there's also stronger experience i think let's put that as a priority for the network when the when the checkpoints open and when the borders open that's the top priority i will pass it on to the cypress antenna thank you so much thank you thank you and have a nice rest of the day thank you very much you you too bye If you enjoyed this episode of Her Stories, please leave comments, suggestions and reviews. 
and share with anyone you feel may find this equally interesting. A big thank you to our sponsor, Ewan Woman, and see you on the next episode.